You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Secret Rooms. Definitive Edition. Chapter 8. A Day in Elkview. From the Journal of Abigail Gray. Elkview, West Virginia, October 11th, 1882. Well, it looks like the path of my life for the next Christ knows how many years just got well and truly decided for me. We rode some 20 miles today. I have never been so saddle sore. Not to be coarse in my first entry to this journal, but my undercarriage feels like a fire in a hammer factory. We picked up four stray dogs on the journey up. I've had one eye on each of these road agents and their silent, sour wives every clippity-clop of the way here to cartographer camp. If Oakley is correct, and America really can use their ten-thumbed skills for the war effort, then we're in altogether more pants-shittingly dire trouble than even Arlington made plain. Things have been frosty between me and the captain since this afternoon. She deliberately rode at the back, in order to avoid having to apologize to me for her terse and unkind words. In truth, I do admire her spunk, and that bullseye on the car trick made all the little hairs on the back of my neck stand to attention. But she's still got the trace of youth on her, and there's growing evidence of a dangerously strong naivety. Her approach to the world is so open and bright, I am positively amazed nobody has put a bullet in her face yet. Butler seems more worldly and serious, but he has such devotion to her that I can't see him overriding any marching orders she might give. Still, we're encamped now, and if I'm lucky, I may never see her again. Let her go off with her sunshine and rainbows in whatever direction I'm not bound. One thing that I did relish was breaking the barrier I've been surrounded by my entire life. I believe I am now further from the place of my birth than I have ever been. What struck me was the complete lack of goblin activity we witnessed. It's as though they're all asleep or dead or at least in hiding. I am actually somewhat resentful that so many years were spent squirreled away, fixed on the certainty of absolute hostility outside our walls. In truth, it was sweeping stretches of uninhabited countryside. Long roads, quiet woods, wild animals in greater abundance than those areas around Weirwood. I ground my teeth in frustration. And that's not to say we saw nothing of the after-effects of our country's decimation. There were burned-out houses along the road. James pointed out a smear of old blood on the broken window as we passed, noting the outline of a clawed handprint. Butler made note as he rode stating that we now had no time to stop, but that on their way back through, the scouts would investigate that side. If Oakley's rifle trickery impressed me, I could see James marveling at Butler's ability to ride while drawing, annotating on an old map unfolded from his notebook. He held onto his horse, bridged with his knees, looping the reins around his elbows. Virgil, the road agent, kept asking his questions about the cartographers. What was our grand plan? Who was back in Washington? What places in America were now safe? Where could he get one of those baths? I kept telling him to ask Oakley, which he did, and she made her replies with practiced flair. As I steered the procured wagon down the road, I stole glances at James to get a reading on him. 
I can tell he was inspired by their oration and demeanor when they first arrived, and he does appear to have committed their handbook to memory. But I know what kind of crap he went through with the violence we've experienced over the years. He'll do fine with his medicines, and he can handle himself if things get dangerous, though he has always avoided directly killing what with that oath of his, and I suspect that's going to put him in hot water sooner or later, as it's clearly a remit of his new vocation. But this moral dilemma he faces doesn't trouble me half as much as his capacity for obsession. I remember the week in the aftermath of our siege, which I now understand is going to be a matter of public record. When he set himself to fixing the wounded, he stopped eating, never slept, and spent his quiet hours staring out of the window of the surgery with an unread book in his lap. He's not the only one with sharp eyes here. I just wish he and I could have talked about it before now. Just as two adults, even if we aren't friends anymore. We wound through wide valleys, up and down hillsides and across scarred areas of track that had been left unattended for years. Struggles for life had been lost here. Long grass and plants grew up through stone and wound themselves around rust and metal. Painted reds had faded to pink and blues to gray. We passed gutted encampments and spotted skeletons in the grass, long picked clean and bleached white by the sun. The thought occurred to me that if we were attacked by yet more road agents, we might have to once again defend this wagon, this time with our original attackers. Butler had hold of all the bullets in his saddlebags, and Carl and Virgil's unloaded and poorly maintained weaponry was within reach should we need to arm our captives, or companions, whichever perspective you prefer. I calculated as we rode what the odds were that they would side with these new opponents, shoot us all in our backs even as we dug in for a firefight. I practiced my final told-you-so glance at Oakley. If heaven exists still, and it's possible to kick someone's ass while you're lining up for your harp and wings, I'll take my opportunity then. But no attack came and we made it to the outskirts of Elkview without dramatic incident, save for the slow, persistent assault on my backside from this saddle. As we entered the camp, which was actually the repurposing of houses and domiciles within the township, we saw lights coming on in the gathering dusk. I confess I felt a stirring in my heart. We led our wagon down the street, and people came out to meet us. I spied holstered guns, but they caught Oakley's eye, and her expression must have told them all was well, as I didn't see a single pistol actively drawn. I saw white scarves and bright eyes, brown coats and clever hands, all gathered to greet us and bring us to their firesides. I keep coming back to the decision that was made in Catherine's study while I wasn't there, the one that sent me from her door. It's left me very much in two minds, and I honestly can't say which way I would have gone, had it been up to me. This new journey out into the world, the vast potential for experience beyond the cage we've been occupying, and the prospect to meet in new folks for the first new conversations I'll have had in years does indeed excite me. But another part of me wants to turn tail and gallop this uncomfortable nag back to Weirwood, riding through darkness and danger for the safety of my home. I miss Joanna's laugh 
and David's music, and I am an unimaginably terrible sister to leave them so. I miss Nathan's voice, and even Bess with all her grappin, and the pushy old Dr. Potts and Susan's stories, and Allison's bread. I miss my bed and the smell of the dining hall. I miss the gardens and the farm. I miss Christopher's bees and the hunting trail. And I miss Catherine. And that sense of safety that came with falling asleep, knowing she'd be awake reading until the small hours, watching our darkened approach. I miss being valued. I miss being able to protect all of that. And God help me, I miss Lucy. The only piece of it I've brought with me is James. And right now I wish I was able to express to him my overwhelming affections for that place in its absence. I'm sitting now by the warmth of a hearth on a mercifully cushioned old armchair. There's no sign of Butler or Oakley, and James and I are free to collect our thoughts in writing. I know already I won't be submitting half of this for any kind of archive. The people around us are simply getting on with their evening, getting food and talking quietly. They must surely encounter newcomers every day, and tired ones at that. Clearly not being overbearing and allowing them to accustom themselves is the done thing. I tasted beef for the first time in six and a half years this evening. My thoughts on these new people and those I've left behind, whom I will probably never see again, have led me, of course, to the time before Weirwood. Clearwater has haunted me my whole adult life, and perhaps now there may be a way for me to lay this particular ghost to rest. From the Journal of James Penrose, Elkview, West Virginia, October 12th, 1882. I greeted the morning in lighter spirits, the safety and practicality of this resettlement having bolstered my previous resolve and indeed my faith in the general sanity of the cartographers. As I exited the bunk room, Butler was there in the corridor, ensconced in further annotations of the road map covering yesterday's journey. Good morning, James. Oh, good morning, Butler. Frank. I've been speaking to some people about what to do with you today. You amenable to a ride back down the road? Figured we could investigate those buildings, see if there's something salvageable, and maybe help the comms team to plot out where they're going to put their telegraph poles. Mm-hmm. I'm ready now. Well, I'll have breakfast first. It's not even seven yet. Certainly. We can do that. You hungry? I'll eat some breakfast. Come with me. Now, that's not what I asked. Are you hungry? In truth, no. It's not something I concern myself with. You rode all day yesterday, and I've seen the carefully rationed portions at Weirwood. Everybody ate just enough to stay alive and healthy. So now my question is, who was it that used to make sure you ate? Well, now that you mention it, it was Potts, my superior, our resident doctor at Weirwood. He brought me my meals. I never asked him to, but he insisted. Then for the time being, I'm your Potts, and I say we're going to eat with the rest of the scouts. 
You'll have a whale of a time getting to know him. I didn't, but I kept my eyes and ears open while we ate. At half past seven, it was time to gather the troops and once again venture forth and back out onto the road. That Jackson Green sure is a hoot. What did you think of a story about the unicorn? Highly dubious. The woman he was accounting for was almost certainly hysterical, and her obvious dehydration coupled with exposure to the elements caused her to hallucinate a white horse into a mythical creature. I don't know, James. I've heard a lot of strange stories these past few years lend weight to the idea that some of these things may be out there. Superstition, given tenacious purchase by a staggered populace looking to believe in the incredible in the face of the terrible. Well, ain't you a barrel of laughs. Here, you gotta choose a horse. Hello there, Virgil. Hello, sir. Got you on stable duty already. And I'm helping to cook the lunch this morning. Be sure to wash those hands first. Why? Glad I'm not here for lunch. David, look after Virgil here for me. It's his first day. Make sure he washes his goddamned hands. Pardon my French. You betcha, Frank. Thank you, Mr. Butler. And my best to the wife. Thank her again for not shooting us in the hearts. Oh, son. She was only gonna shoot you in the testicles. Here, James, mount up. You know, Butler? Frank. Frank. There was something else which made me discredit Green's story. Besides the obvious lack of adherence to reality. Oh, yes? Here's engaging in illicit sexual congress with Albert Kelly's wife. Marsha Kelly? How do you figure? Three reasons. Firstly, when Pedro asked what we had all done during the bonfire party this Saturday gone, Kelly stated that he had spent the late evening in the saloon. Green adjusted his hat and stated that he had spent it reading. When asked in what, with interest, he adjusted his hat once more and said, The Virginians. Then, when I later mentioned my love of William Makepeace Thackeray, his eyes did not register the name as familiar in the slightest, and of course, during his unicorn story, when it came time for him to elaborate on the details of the beast, despite being a theatrical and overbearing storyteller. He adjusted... He adjusted his hat. That I didn't notice. But so what? He lied about reading a book. He lied. To remain unaccounted for on an evening when Kelly was not at home. It was not enough to be conclusive. However... On both occasions when Kelly brought up the subject of his son, Green looked away, and within 20 seconds had interrupted and changed the subject. Yet, when we were regaled with the story of Mrs. Kelly's disappearing bullet, Green was all ears. No man cares about a woman's headwear more than he cares for the woman herself, and I would surmise that there is some contention over the child's parentage that Kelly is as yet unaware of. In which case this extramarital affair has gone on several years. I sincerely doubt that, but go on. And finally, Green was given to scratching at his crotch for the duration of breakfast, a detail that would mark him as an unsavoury character in and of itself had Kelly not been sporting a matching set of sores just under the left-hand side of his handlebar moustache, the hallmarks of the virus belonging to the family Herpes Viridae. Whoa! Now, I'll concede that was disgustingly impressive, but Green first arrived here two weeks ago. If you're right, then that there itchy crotch of his is fresh. So I don't think Albert Jr.'s parentage is in question. If you're on the money here, then that reaction is guilt. Green might see the boy as an obstacle or living proof he's doing something wrong. Now that I think about it, he was real friendly with Albert when we sat down but left without a word. I put that down to Perro calling him on his bullcrap unicorn story, pardon my French. But he may have had other things on his mind. My apologies. I spoke out of turn. I will stand by my claim, but the more personal aspects of this particular tryst appear to have been the subject of heavy inference on my part. 
No offense intended, sir. We need that attention to detail. You ever considered being a tracker? Certainly. In the past few days, I have. Apply those eyes and ears and that nose of yours, and I don't think whoever you were after would be able to stay hidden or ahead for too long. Look, I'll introduce you to a friend of mine, Laughing Fox, later today. Let him take you under his wing, so to speak. That's him up ahead. And what of Green and Kelly? Whom will you confront? Who would you choose? Neither. I would locate Mrs. Kelly herself and tell her to end this affair before its repercussions affect the settlement. That's fairly astute, but you know there are going to be repercussions either way. Albert's a loving, but tedious man, and Green's an exciting distraction. There's no right answer here, James. You have to listen to both your brain and your heart. Can't use just one. So what is your own course of action in this matter? I'm gonna talk to Green. If he doesn't knock this off immediately, he's a selfish poison to this unit, and I'll get him busted down to field duty. I sincerely hope this is not construed as my making trouble. No, James, the truth will out. I like people who help it along the way. But I also like the unicorn story, so there you go. You have been listening to episode 8 of Secret Rooms, A Day in Elkview. Written and directed by Alexander Shaw. Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw. James Penrose, performed by Alex Shaw. Frank Butler, performed by Spencer Lieb. Virgil, performed by Lauren Grieve. Long Note 2 and Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Many Soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Vahey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Just before we go, it is worth pointing out that the first book in Phase 2 of New Century has just been released, Uncivil Outlaw. And this is the first one that I am doing without the audio adaptation coming first. So that's Uncivil Outlaw, now available on Amazon, via the Kindle store, or a beautiful paperback edition. And this one is a gripping, page-turning political thriller. So if you've read or listened up to Steamheart, this book is your next port of call. 